Hello, it's me, Jason. The episode you're about to listen to was recorded at RailsConf. We made tons of mistakes and recorded it upstairs uh, in a place they were doing construction. I've tried my best to trim up the audio, get rid of some of that background noise, but it's going to be a little bit of a ride. Nonetheless, though, you can hear Justin Searles, today's guest, really well. And I'd encourage you, if you can, just to work through some of that noise. In the future, when we do these live, we'll do them a lot better. Anyway, thank you for listening to this podcast. Hello, Chris. What's up, Jason? I see you face to face this time. I know, it's weird. Yeah. It's the first time we've ever done this live, and we are surrounded by tons of sounds and construction, and also our friend Justin Searles. Hello. And we're all here at RailsConf. Yes. Last day, winding down. Uh, Justin, if you don't mind, just uh, maybe give a quick introduction. Yeah, so um, I'm a uh, software developer. I live in Columbus, Ohio. Uh, See, I have a woefully receiving hairline. I'm the co-founder of a software consultancy called Test Double. Um, I guess relevant to this podcast is we've been fully distributed from day one. Uh, My co-founder also lives in Columbus, uh, and when we started the company in 2011, uh, you know, suburban sprawl being what it is, uh, you know, we, we, we realized we'd be giving up two billable hours a day to just, you know, uh, commute to be in the same place simultaneously. And so uh, it was a pretty easy decision to just uh, work from home. And as we hired additional people, we realized, you know, if you want to hire the best people, uh, constraining yourself to one zip code or one metro region uh, is kind of just, you know, an arbitrary distinction. Uh, and so it's Really cool that you guys are doing this podcast, uh, and you know I'm I'm excited to talk about uh, you know a little bit about my story, but also uh, you know learn a bit about you all as well. Cool. Um, you want to tell us uh, how you started programming? Yeah, you know I feel like uh, there are so many stories of privileged white kid who grew up in the 80s whose parents saw a Radio Shack ad and then got them a computer and they played computer games and then they figured out the computer could do other things too. So I don't want to retell one of those. Um, What I will say is that the first time I actually wrote a program was a funny accident. I uh, was on vacation with my family and uh, Northwest Airline, uh, 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 now Delta, uh, lost our luggage. And so all I had was like my winter coat and my backpack and, and it was really hot. And, uh, you know, I was an overweight kid and I was uncomfortable and, uh, we were just uh, on the beach and I didn't have like a swimsuit. I didn't have any appropriate attire. Uh, all I had was my homework, which took me like three hours to do. And I had a Casio graphing calculator with me and, so I was holed up in this um, uh, condo for probably three days before our luggage showed up. And so I just ran out of things to do, and I started futzing with the uh, calculator. And it had what I later learned to be a, a, a varietal of basic on it. And so I, I just, out of boredom, like, uh, you know, it, it was a very discoverable interface because, like, each of the constructs were actually like, on the function keys, and I could kind of cycle oh, through cool. them, and I could learn, like, okay, so... If I can figure that out else, okay, while and whatnot, no one had ever taught me any of this stuff. And I built a number guessing game where the, you know, randomly generate a number, you'd give it like a max and it would pick one. And then you'd, um, you know, uh, bisect to guess, you know, uh, high, low or whatever. And, mm-hmm. and uh, I'd, I'd play test against my dad. 
Uh, I was probably like 10 at the time, so I didn't really know what I was doing, but it was a lot of fun to just have that feedback loop with my dad. And uh, yeah, he'd play with it. And then by like the fourth day, uh, I was building a headless, user interfaceless uh, uh, checkers CLI uh, <laughs> of, of uh, like, you know, giving uh, little like positions to, to the pieces and the board and all that. Um, again, completely oblivious to the fact that like mail by chess is like a thing with rules and whatnot. <laughs> and uh, my dad started playing that. And then um, pretty quickly, uh, uh, our luggage showed up and I was out playing on the beach and I didn't program again for nine years. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, for nine years. Well, wow. uh, yeah, it depends on your definition of programming, I guess. Sure. Uh, okay. I spent a lot of time uh, focused on like front end web and uh, well, whatever you call it then, just HTML and gotcha. uh, CSS yeah. and stuff and, and blogging. But then it took a long time before I was building, you know, applications. Yeah. Uh, the graphing calculator was like where I got started too. Like really? building useful stuff because my dad had a Atari basic programming book and we didn't have an atari but he gave it to me and i was like this is this is cool and he was like well your like dos computer we have might work and we like you know i was building calculators and stuff from the book but it was not useful but then when i get the graphing calculator i can code anytime during any class whenever i'm bored and stuff so it became quickly like uh you know entertainment but also maybe i can cheat on homework you know but then, of course, the trick was you think you're cheating on homework, but you had to learn the math to yeah. write your program to cheat, so you didn't need it at the end. So that was pretty funny. Yeah. So what you went into web stuff. Um, what was that for? Just fun? Interesting? I don't think I've ever admitted to this in um, like our Ruby community, but the thing that got me started was I had several friends who uh, just kind of had fan sites in the in the mid '90s and late '90s. Um, you know, fans of video games, uh, especially, uh, and you know, they, they'd get a high traffic domain name, and we'd suddenly get a lot of traffic uh, for just you know, like what's uh, essentially looks like a GeoCities or Angel Fire <laughs> kind of site. And we'd write, you know, um, I started by walk, writing, like, walkthroughs of, of games and uh, uh, FAQs to, like, you know, about, like, uh, you know, like, solutions and stuff. And this is before, you know, like, uh, everything had coalesced. I, they, like, for example, there's a site called n64.com, which was later, like, you know, merged and acquired into what is now, like, part of IGN mm-hmm. over this very mm-hmm. securitous, like, link of, 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 of acquisitions. And, um, you know, there was so much kind of blog role, I guess what you now call blog role, although now you'd call it nothing because <laughs> we don't have blogs like this anymore. But um, a precursor to blog roles was sort of like a, a very lo-fi syndicated content where you'd go to like one of these popular gaming sites and um, I'd see uh, uh, another uh, gaming site referenced on there or like a, a partner post and I actually just sent like an email saying hey i'd like to get into this i'd like to like like get into game news reporting and me an, a you know 12 year old kid um and the great thing about the internet of course is no one can see you and card <laughs> you and stuff and so i got into this with a, a, a guy and we got um we started covering like live video game events because he was like you know from a family that was super connected to journalists uh and uh he and i uh, would stay up late at night covering live events in Japan and regularly get 300,000 unique visitors a day. Wow. Uh, you know, and I was in middle school, and it turns out he was a year younger than me. Uh, and <laughs> okay. so so uh, that was where I cut my teeth on writing um, because, you know, you'd write a post, and then you'd see, like, you'd, you'd, you'd realize that, like, all of these people, especially adults, were reading it. And I would just, um, I, I, would, I would edit my text 
like obsessively after posting something. So I'd put something up there and then I'd fix, 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 which is how I write code in open source too, right? I just push to master and then I just mm -hmm. like uh, feel shame and then I go and clean it up real quickly. <laughs> sure. And that made me a much, much better writer. And so I had this uh, on and off hmm. experience um, writing for gaming sites and then, and then doing my own kind of like comedy blogging um, uh, up until I went to college. And so the person that um, I was working with, uh, it was his site, but uh, we were kind of... Um, uh, working together, his name is Brian Stelter, and he went on to be a New York Times reporter, uh, oh, and wow. now he's got a show on CNN. Uh, you know, <laughs> so, so he's cool. like he's a big time journalist, journalist, and I'm just you know still an amateur video game player. <laughs> yeah. So you say comedy blog? Yeah. Uh, there's probably no evidence of this now, but I started a um, I guess a local. When I was in high school, I started. I worked like a lot of retail jobs, and this is before smartphones existed. And uh, you know, it was a sleepy suburb for the most part. And so, like at my at my Blockbuster where I worked, there'd very often be no customers for seven. If like, like so in Metro Detroit, if the, if the Red Wings were in the playoffs, for example, or if the Pistons were in the playoffs, we'd often have an entire eight-hour shift with zero customers. Wow. And I would just stare at a wall and like, you know, the, the eight minute long little like VHS loop on all the TVs would just kind of continue playing. And <laughs> my, I would I would slip into this meditative coma, uh, just, you know, blank stare. And my my brain started building kind of imaginative stories um, and, and just keen, interesting, counterintuitive insights about, you know, Life and uh, so I, I I would rush home and I'd have I just pour out these um, blog posts that were you know mildly comedic interesting little like snippets and uh, I, because I you know while everyone else is like I saw on like a live journal or something like that at the time the fact that I had my own domain name and I was designing my own pages and stuff was sticky enough that like I I, I started to develop like this like fan following within my high school being like a relatively unpopular kid just like developing sort of like a persona for myself uh which you know you can imagine is a skill that has served me in adulthood <laughs> sure and uh uh i started recruiting some of my best friends in high school to like join as like you know staff writers and and we started uh you know doing web comics and uh by the time we graduated uh, high school it was just sort of a, a a really interesting little life experience that's awesome. That is really cool. So, you say you're a blockbuster? Yeah. <laughs> Rest in peace. I still remember my, 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 uh, if you're at one of the two in like Alaska or whatever, my, uh, membership cut number is 226196 <laughs> because you had to type that into the fucking console so many times. So, from blockbuster to test double, sounds like from a movie to test double, what is that like? You, uh, what's maybe some of your first programming jobs? Yeah, you know, I um, uh, when I went to college, I went to a small liberal arts school, and uh, I double majored in uh, Asian studies with a focus on Japanese language and computer science. And uh, uh, you know, relevant here, of course, computer science just it never really clicked with me because I didn't have the practical programming experience to contextualize all of the the things that my professors were trying to teach and because I just didn't have that foundation it was mostly just in one year and out the other and I was just you know treading water trying to survive every lab exercise and everything was just so precarious and I'd I'd hole up in the lab for hours and hours and hours uh entire weekends you know keep the door propped open for bathroom breaks and stuff and 
uh, it was as if I was hoping that like through some kind of divination, I would suddenly understand, you know, how to implement a red black tree or something in C++. And it was a very, very, I think, demotivating experience overall. Uh, it is because I didn't learn anything. It hasn't proved to be very valuable in my career, although I felt like 10 years hence, uh, you know, maybe starting a computer science degree as a 30 year old would have been more successful for me. Mm. Um, but yeah, rewinding back to then, I got lucky. Uh, I had a kind of like a, you know, uh, uh, some sort of mandatory uh, business tech kind of class elective that all the freshmen had to take, like learn how to use email and Word uh, <laughs> and just sort of the basics like that. And the professor happened to be the head of IT for the college. Uh, so he's just sort of a, I guess not a professor so much as just a, you know, a teacher of the, of the class. And he grabbed me afterwards and said, hey, how would you like a part-time job down in the IT department? We got this funny little um, skunk works department and their, their job, uh, it was called the Digital Studio. Their job is basically to do um, little technical one-off projects for professors and for departments that are a little too technical, you know, like can't be done in Excel or MS Access or something like that. And uh, my first crack at it was uh, a, a project for the library. They wanted to have a free citation generator uh, and bibliography generator. Uh, and they wanted it to support different uh, citation standards like APA, MLA, and Chicago, Turabian. And uh, I knew nothing about any of this, but they said, you know, look, it's real simple. You just type in names or whatever and you spit out, you know, uh, 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 the same names and certain semicolons and commas like it's very systematic and you can probably figure this out and I didn't have any clue how to do it but it was such a simple at first problem that I spent the summer making $10 an hour um, I think I had a you know thousand hour budget or something and I, I, I worked full time over that summer for 10 bucks living in my um, friend's parents houses you know like sharing his childhood bedroom um, <laughs> because uh, I couldn't afford uh, a rent. Uh, and what, what, what came out the other end was a 16,000-line PHP file uh, that had all of the CSS. It was like JSX. Uh, it had all the CSS <laughs> and the JavaScript and the HTML all, all in one place. Uh, and it was basically just an infinite list of if and else conditions for, hey, if you're in this particular style, then put a comma, otherwise put a semicolon. And... Um, the, the subsequent summer, uh, I came back and they had me build a persistent bibliography generator where you can create an account system and have your bibliography uh, sorted and then exported to a Word document. And I just didn't know any better, like that, it, that that should be hard or that that should take a certain amount of work. I just brute forced everything. And uh, like so much successful software in the world, uh, didn't know what I was doing. And it's been used by... It's used hundreds of millions of times by millions of people at schools across the world because it's free. Uh, so it's part of the curriculum. And all it's still like it hasn't the code hasn't changed in 16, 17 years. <laughs> That's cool. Um, and it's just by far the most successful software I've ever written, and by far the lowest quality. <laughs> but I learned a lot about the cadence of building an application, right? I, I I I would literally sit down with uh, you know the librarians for lunch and just talk to them and try to understand their work. Like I didn't understand what information science was or anything like that. Honestly, it probably would have been a better major choice for me, uh, given that like you know my job as a programmer is mostly just organizing and taxonomy of 
mm-hmm. models. Sure. But uh, uh, you know that it was through that I learned basic empathy for the user, understanding that this was a big deal to them, even though it was just a stupid ten dollar an hour job for me. Um, not to say that ten dollars an hour was anything to sneeze at. It was a big improvement over my blockbuster wages. Sure. Uh, but uh, uh, you know, it's where I kind of learned just the basic cadence of software delivery. And I didn't get that from my computer science degree, unfortunately. Um, So it really prepared me, I think, for my next several jobs. I don't think that's really, like, changed much either in computer science. At least when, like, I was studying last, like, eight, ten years, I dropped out because it felt like I was already, like, kind of in the software development world, and I wasn't learning the things that, like, I use every day, like... Yeah. Source control, yeah. like that's that was my experience too. Like computer science stuff was like when we got into the algorithms, I didn't have anything to apply those to and mm. we had generic like examples and I didn't care. But then there was some stuff where, you know, we had an assembly class that was like, Hey, imagine that you're working on the mar- like the moon rover and you wanna be able to like take pictures and you have the binary data and you wanna compress it and send it back. You know, how do you do that? And I was like, okay, that's actually cool. And, you know, I enjoyed that. But, you know, a lot of the other stuff was just not practical, you know. And when you're learning that in order to get a job, you want to just know practical stuff, I felt like. So I I struggled with that, too. I feel like you can either learn programming from the outside in. Like, here's a website. I'm going to open up DevTools. I'm just going to figure out what, what it's made of. And, and, well, now we have DevTools, which is nice, a right. resource. And uh, I'm going to kind of just work um, from the most extrinsic layer, the most visible layer, and just keep peeling back layers, which is, a, like, what you're referring to, a very pragmatic way to approach things. Um, might mean that it takes a long time to get a deep understanding of how anything, quote-unquote, really works. Um, and then there's the bottom-up way, which I've seen be successful, but usually at, um, uh, uh, usually at universities for whom the computer software track is more like a computer engineering track. Like, it's closer to the hardware engineering. Because I agree, like, my, my yeah. assembly class was most relevant because it was starting at a foundational enough layer mm-hmm. that it made sense. The whole mm-hmm. thing fit in my head. It was yeah. it was all these sort of, like, middle-tier ones that assumed a basic understanding of programming mm-hmm. that I just lacked. Yeah, that's that was definitely the case for me. Like... Uh, when I started, I was in you know grade school doing that basic stuff, and I didn't understand you could reuse a variable. So like your long script, my I was trying to make a hangman game, and I had for every branch where if you get it right or you get it wrong, I duplicated everything with new variables and drew it all out, and then I ended up like, well, you could only do three-letter words to play hangman because I would go through and like have all of those options written out. And I was like, programming sucks (laughs) super hard. So what, what led you into test double and all that? So, um, I had, uh, uh, back in like 2005, I started learning Ruby and rails and I had several friends who started doing independent contracting, um, building little apps in Ruby locally. In Western Michigan, we had a, a, a Great Lakes Ruby meetup and even did a couple of conferences. And I was sort of tangentially there, but I just never felt that attached to new stuff. Like, I don't do startup work. I don't do minimum viable products personally. Like, I just don't get excited about 
Yeah. Bootstrapping. How, how did you find Ruby in the first place, actually? It was a confluence of two things at once, actually. I was a, studying abroad in Japan, and when my, uh, one of my homestay brothers was uh, the equivalent of, like, an MIS major in university, living at home, and uh, he had, like, what then uh, was, like, a kind of ratty, torn-up uh, copy of, like, an intro to Ruby, uh, and we talked about the language and how it came from Japan. I thought that was really interesting, and uh, it basically was, like, Pearl with classes, and I was like, okay, well, I get that. <laughs> and uh, then uh, roughly simultaneously, you know, uh, I guess uh, uh, Rails was, like, 0.8 or something, and my friends back home who were... Um, really into like extreme programming at the time they were kind of on the mailing list and hearing about Rails and they were getting really excited and so I was hearing about Ruby from Japanese friends and hearing about Rails from American friends uh, uh, abroad and uh, uh, yeah that's that's what got me initially plugged in so when I came back I was one of the, you know, the 20 people in Grand Rapids who cared about Ruby um, but from there I just never felt comfortable it felt too slick it felt too um, seat of the pants. I wanted to feel more kind of stable security. I wanted a type system. I wanted a database that had constraints in it, right? And that was very countercultural. I wanted like clear dependencies and understanding because what I was searching for was terra firma. I was searching for uh, finger holes to, 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 to grip onto. And so I ended up going to a big accounting firm uh, doing two-year, $2 million Java enterprise projects. Uh, and, and I'm really, really grateful that I did that. Uh, you know, uh, I, I want, I wanted to take the stair steps to success and only gradually kind of, um, uh, get the, get, get both the work freedom as well as the, I think, dynamism of, of, of a more kind of relaxed technical environment so that I was coming from a, a place of, I think, just better understanding. I really am grateful for having that backstop of, Hey, here's what it's like to, to to be a cog in a gigantic bureaucracy and trying to make things work and understanding that you're under severe constraints because the sensation of having those constraints gradually lifted as I went from a gigantic company to progressively smaller ones just gave a, a sense of progression and wind at my back in my career. Whereas if I'd started as like a independent Ruby contractor or at a small agency and I just all I had done for my entire career, I don't think that I'd still have like the breadth of perspective uh, and the scar tissue and the callus that I use to, to try to provide people who are in harder positions good advice. Hmm. Yeah. So what that led you into starting your own slowly um, you know we uh, a lot of us in the Midwest got um, uh, really excited about what talking about those kinds of big companies that are more structurally um, uh, uh, fixed in their thinking about how to approach buying software and building software agile had a lot to offer in the form of let's make this more collaborative let's break down walls let's get people talking together and so, um, not so much Scrum, but I was really into extreme programming. Um, I was really into like you know treating software as like a hybrid role where you, you know, are part of a cross-functional team and you're you're more in tune with the business value of what you're doing. And so, uh, I worked at a consultant company that focused on sort of like agile transformations, and these were like top-down initiatives where you know a CIO at a bank or a steel company would like you know see a slick sales demo about how agile was going to you know quadruple the speed of their software developers that move too slow and then they'd buy into that and I'd show up and we'd do a pilot project and it would go really well 
but the buy-in wasn't there because it wasn't, you know, bought into by the the rank and file, so to speak. The, the you know, it wasn't a bottom-up thing. It wasn't. It was uh, um, all motivated about going faster, better, stronger. And even though, like, when a first project goes well, I. Uh, it can be a bit of a fluke because because it's a shock to the system. But like the second project, you know, like everyone, the the the, the host rejects the parasite in the organization, and they, you know, the DBAs would move a little bit slower, and you'd start to see more like politicking against us, and the change management people would push back. And what I realized was that this is just not an organic, you know, um, empathetic way to to change how an organization does things. And so when we founded Test Double, it was really on the theory that. Yes, all of this experience is good. Yes, understanding systems thinking and deming and and big concepts that like help you design big organizations like that is a very valuable like uh, set of um, perspectives and grounding and skills. But the if you want to really make that kind of impact, the best way to do it is to humbly just approach teams and say, "Hey, I'm a developer. I want to work with you," and build credibility by just getting stuff done. Proving that you're uh, uh, competent and that you understand them, get to know their business. You, you approach their systems and their tools with the same sort of thought. That, hey, well, you know, whatever you're doing made you successful, so it can't be all that bad. And and go in with an open hand that like you don't have it all figured out. That you don't have like like not coming in with this dogmatic like TDD is the one, one true way kind of thing that a lot of agile consultants would do. And that way, consulting can be a place where you know you you both learn and you teach, and so that's always been our model: is we view ourselves as sort of a blue collar consultancy. You know what what the market's asking for is I want more senior developers on my team, and we're like, all right, well, we hire senior developers and we can put them on your team, and here's the value add that you're going to get. You're also going to get after a month, you know, people that you really trust to offer you outside advice on how your whole team can improve. And we don't know what that's going to look like yet, but. Um, Whatever it is, we will be there with you through it to offer up the idea, to help you implement it. And our, our promise to you is that we're going to leave your team in a better place than we found it. We're not just going to be added capacity. And when we started working on that pitch, my co-founder Todd Kaufman and I, um, uh, you know, it's evolved, of course. But when we started working on that premise, we it's the simplest business in the world, right? It's just like work for hire. I just show up and do stuff. And... We'll do whatever you need to do. Um, it shouldn't have been that hard, but we got so much resistance because at the time, every other agency on the planet seemed to want to be like a city on a hill. Like we had the Pivotal Labs. We cooked up the perfect process. You come to us. Don't send your developers at first, just the product owner, and we'll, we, we will get this party started, and then we will have some sort of like handoff ceremony and teach your people you know, our way of doing things, right? Or we will take on your entire project, and then we will ship you this beautiful software at the other end. Um, and even if you don't understand how to maintain it, you'll just have to trust that it's immaculate and perfect. And that just never made any sense to me. Uh, I would much rather be hand in glove with people, and I work it. We are even today. All of our contracts are week to week. You know, we just have we have several clients on year four of their week to week contract. <laughs> wow, um, that's cool. Uh, because really cool. as soon as we stop adding value, as soon as they're able to pick up and run without us, um, you know, uh, that's that's fine. You know, we we just want to be there to provide the lift that they need when they need it, and. Uh, we're pretty confident that other people are going to need that help, and it'll work out. Uh, and so it's it's a simple business. It's I cool. like that. Yeah, I mean, it makes it if you were going to hire someone, it sounds 
just so much different than everyone else. And it's like, yeah, of course. That's what I've been looking for the whole time. But everybody is trying to sell, sell, sell. And it's... Um, so Testable Works, according, according to your website, just some of the employees I know you have, uh, several technologies, not just Ruby. Sure. Um, but I think the communities I've seen you specifically most involved in are Ruby and JavaScript. Yeah. So I was curious to hear a little more how JavaScript and if applicable node even kind of fit into the ecosystem at Testable. Yeah. So, so the most important thing that I think anyone in the company would tell you is that we're focused first and foremost on people and the human experience of understanding what software is and then um, participating in sort of the collaborative effort of figuring out how to take an idea and turn it into a thing that provides some kind of value, whether it's making money or saving money or doing some good in the world. And that is not about Ruby and that is not about JavaScript. And so what we look for in technologists, first and foremost, you know, our first interview is the consulting interview. Like, um, uh, how much experience do you have dealing with hard conversations on teams uh, uh, or, or dealing with tricky situations? Uh, and, and how would you approach, like, what are your instincts and what's your experience like? Uh, and what do you have to offer from um, just like a perspective angle? And so almost all of our people you know, they have interesting stories of their own. Uh, most of them, you know, to talk about technologies for a second, most of them are polyglots, you know, like a lot of people in the company, not everybody, but a lot of people follow a trajectory like I did of, you know, starting in uh, 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 like a, a big Java or .NET enterprise environment and then moving to, you know, maybe Ruby and then moving to like, you know, uh, either JavaScript or maybe a designer language or something. And so having gone through the transition of, three or four different language ecosystems, pretty soon your ability to kind of, it's like the matrix, right? Like it's, you see through it, you, you see, you, you just, you see that the, every framework that is uh, fit to try to solve a particular class of problem is roughly, you know, fungible. And the, the hard part is stuff like naming and organizing <laughs> and, um, you know, being open and honest about progress and being able as a small team to communicate uh, and market your successes and your failures in a way that the broader organization will respect and respond to appropriately. Um, and so hiring people who have experience in a couple different languages, uh, uh, usually that's a good enough marker for us that they'll be able to cut it at any of our clients. And so we got clients, we were doing several clients doing Elixir, Couple doing Elm, couple doing Clojure, Clojure Script, a uh, couple doing GoLang, uh, uh, and while we of course try to you know meet what the client's asking for, if they need senior people with a very particular skill set, we'll do our best. But in general, like our, our people are pretty awesome at just uh, 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 catching up to speed on any particular language or framework pretty quickly. It's cool. So just more like senior level programmers that can just adapt. Yeah, it's cool. Uh, shifting away, I guess, from the test of a life. So the first time I actually came across Justin Searles was uh, RailsConf, Kansas City. Mm. So I was on the airplane uh, flying to New Orleans, and I was like, oh, like, scrolling through, and you had posted a talk that you gave literally, like, the day before. And if I'm not mistaken, it was Sam's talk, and Sam was sick. Yeah. And so... It was a talk on RSpec. You talked about RSpec for like 10 minutes, and they're like, 
all right, here's my talk now. (laughs) (laughs) I was so impressed. Uh, The premise of the talk was making Ruby great again. And so that was like, that really resonated me with at the time. Uh, And so I was just kind of curious if you can think back and remember like what kind of led you to want to talk about that? Yeah, so so a little added context, I guess. I got a text message from Sam about um, ten days before the conference, and you know we 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 knew each other, and uh, he needed a pinch hitter because um, he, he was uh, uh, going through a little health uh, uh, issue, and I mean I had been I either rejected or failed to apply to be in the conference, and uh, you know he knew how much I loved attention, and so <laughs> I. I, I, I kind of, I was wishy-washy for a few minutes, but then I ultimately said yes. And, you know, he told me, here's the three or four things that you need to announce about RSpec, but otherwise I don't care what you do. And I decided to just use that time to bring a lot of energy to the room and to tell people that, um, you know, because what I was hearing at that moment uh, in my in, uh, role as like a salesperson was tons of founders were getting this advice from their peers. Uh, these are non-technical people saying like everything has to be done in Node.js or microservices. Ruby's old and crusty or Rails is outmoded or, you know, I never I should never use Heroku because like now it's all about AWS or whatever. And uh, it was just very disheartening because I was like, we're finally at the moment. Like I said earlier, I'm not into like, you know, startups and MVP. It's just like early life cycle stages of language ecosystems. It's just like, I'm not well suited for that. What I'm really well suited for is mature complexity, detangling, legacy rescue, renovating software, upgrading hard projects. And Rails and Ruby were finally at this stage of maturity where it's like, now we can start dealing with the really fun stuff right of like we have all these tools they work really well they're mostly stable and we can just focus on building great things with them and uh, to have that also be the moment where it's like all right well rails is done now because it's not in the news or you know ruby's over because it's like mostly stable and the language isn't experiencing a lot of churn so it's not generating a lot of headlines uh whereas like there's a new javascript framework every day back then um, it was uh, really, really frustrating to me. And so I wanted that talk to be uh, motivated. And so because that was frustrating, I just wanted to bring energy to people to give them some, you know, I'm not a motivational speaker by any stretch, but I wanted to give some inspiration to the idea that, like, look, like, like, mature is good. You know, these are mature things, and we can do great things with them, and they still have a long way to go, but it's going to take a different mindset now. Um, and it's going to take all of us to continually renew and refresh uh, the 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 image of Ruby and Rails, and we do that by being part of an active community. We do that by outreach. We do that by efforts to teach and educate people, um, and we do it in ways that, like you know, uh, they have to, we have to find a way to substitute the marketing glitz of new buzzwords and uh, new releases of new things. And, and there's nothing wrong with new things. We'll, we'll continue to make new things, but we can't let um, newness be equated with goodness. And I think that we are such a hype-driven industry that uh, people just assume that new is better, and new is often not better. You know, we know this, you know, version one of anything is going to be slower and buggier, and uh, it's going to have not batteries included, you know? And uh, uh, that whole, I think, I've been on, I think, a little bit of a mission to fight against that broader culture, 
you know, in the same way that we're just a boring company. Uh, I, I want I want boring code to be fine mm-hmm. for the same reason. That's really good. Yeah, it's it's a hard shift to make in the community to do that because every there's so many people that there's a lot of new people. They're always driven in the new stuff. You know, they're like whatever I can go find a job in the most or the easiest, and um, then then that shift of people. But it's also probably good in some ways to get rid of some of those people that are just looking for the next thing. So. Well, they'll, they'll always have something to find, right? I mean, yeah. uh, 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 and, and more power to them. Because, again, people are, are situated for different stages in a life cycle. Um, you know, some people want another crack at a new unexplored territory. They want the Wild West experience. And, um, you know, a lot of those people, maybe they moved on to uh, Elixir and Phoenix or... Uh, a, you know, an entirely different language, and I don't know. I think that's great. There's there's room for everything. Mm-hmm. That talk, and then that was the next year, I believe you keynoted RailsConf. So 2017. Yeah, and so then that following RubyConf, there was a whole track on like the future of Ruby, mm-hmm. which started with the death of Ruby, the continuation of Ruby, and the future of Ruby, uh, and so all these like. These three talks kind of back to back. You've been keynoting, and I, I'm attending, and I'm like soaking it all in. And so, one thing I notice is you just have a great like stage presence. You can communicate well. Uh, it just seems like you're a very natural public speaker. And I'm curious if uh, that's something you kind of always felt, or like public speaking was kind of a thing you just acquired along the way. It's a muscle, and you know you work the muscle out, and the muscle gets stronger. I still say like and um a lot. I um, the best piece of advice I ever got about speaking was from one of my computer science professors. He uh, I asked him on a on a lark one day, with small class sizes, so you often just kind of BS with the profs before class. I asked him, "Hey, do you still get nervous before you teach a lesson?" And he said, "Yeah, every day. Wow. You've been doing that for thirty years." And I was like, "Well." That sucks. And he's like, no, because what I've learned is that the nervousness is a necessary ingredient to doing a good job. It's nervousness by itself, yeah, that leads to all the, you know, the terrible nightmare scenarios of being caught without your pants on or something in front of an audience and getting embarrassed. But when you're nervous and you're sufficiently prepared, he said, that's when you're just on edge and you have this energy and uh, uh, you can, you can, people can sense that energy and they feed off of it. And that little interaction has been rattling around my brain ever since then, because I have a tremendous amount of nervousness and anxiety more than the average person. And I also have a capacity to put my head down and, and prepare deeply um, and spend a lot of time going really, really deep, chasing down um, sometimes absurd things and ideas. Um, And I've designed my entire life around minimalism and uh, uh, the aversion of of, uh, uh, long-term commitments. And so I I, I think that all I intrinsically bring to the table that's different than the average person is uh, a tremendous amount of anxiety and a a tremendous uh, uh, interest in deep solitary thought and so 
the rest is environmental, right? So, so when I get on stage, it's um, it started off as that nervousness would be manifest itself in a cracked voice, or um, you know, my brain would cycle through uh, its internal monologue, would just start screaming at me, right? You're, you're doing this, you're holding that wrong, you're. Um, I would spend a lot of time like meta talking about like, and now we're, we're going to enter the part of the talk where I talk about the talk, talk, you know, instead of just like, you know, um, making it, it was, it was my brain making it about me instead of me making it about the experience of the people. And so I did a couple things that have helped a lot. One is, uh, when I, when I speak in front of a room, um, and I, and I, and my brain goes in any direction that says that this is about me and my experience and what I'm getting out of it. I reframe that and I imagine that everybody in the room is worth $200 an hour and I multiply that by all the people and I multiply that by, you know, I don't know, 40 minute talk, 0.7 hours. Uh, and I say like, I need to provide them enough value to offset the economic loss of this much time. And how am I going to provide them that value? Like, it means I need to make them feel something after this that, that, that influences their behavior or changes their lives in some way. And when I think in those terms, slowly the anxieties that um, target myself and get all caught up in my own shit, it becomes like an ion cannon that I'm blasting at others. And I'm not, not that I'm pushing on them, but I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to share this very focused beam of energy to say, here's this distillation of six months of me caring too much about this thing, and you only get 40 minutes of it with me. And, I, and that's why I have 700 slides, and that's why I try to be really high energy, and that's why I try to be really, really um, careful in my language, um, uh, because I'm trying to uh, convey a very, very um, uh, stark crystallization about one thing so that I can just plant in everybody's skull a very tiny little message that might have an impact on some percentage of them. And if I've, if I've done that, then, then, then mission, mission accomplished, I guess. And it's just taken 10 years of practice to get better at it. It's awesome. One of the things I think, uh, also most importantly, I've learned from your slides is how to make an emoji hmm. an ungodly size. Sure, yeah. <laughs> your, your ability to take an emoji and make it a thousand pixels is bar none. <laughs> it's, uh, it's actually easier than you think. But uh, uh, I was proud that this week I was actually able to give a talk with zero emoji in it. Whoa. So was, uh, oh, wow. <laughs> big, uh, big accomplishment for me. Last thing, uh, I just want to briefly kind of ask you. There's actually a lot more things I want to ask you. We may have to do this again sometime. Sure. But this time last year, maybe a couple of years ago, you were talking about how you had set up an iPad as your like on the go programming device. And I'm just curious, A, if you still do that and B, what is some of like, uh, what was the experience and what was the motivation? So the motivation for me in, um, trying to use an iPad for as like my daily driver device is that I think that one of the um, tremendous things about iOS when it's blown up into a, a 11 inch format is that it is not a windowing system. Uh, it's notifications have relatively granular controls. Um, you know, those have increased dramatically with the addition of screen time uh, uh, in iOS 12 and 
I, I think a lot about how, as a tool, like what I want is something that's lightweight. Um, I want something that's rugged. Uh, I want something that is uh, going to ha- uh, be reliable, uh, like uh, have a you know good battery life and, and so forth. Uh, I want something that is uh, connected, having like LTE, you know. So like those check a lot of kind of just hardware geek boxes for me. But most importantly, isn't the machine? It's how does my brain respond to the stimuli of like the computing environment that I'm in? And when I'm on a Mac, no amount of uh, apps like uh, Hocus Focus, which which focuses you on just one window at a time and hides the background, or um, uh, uh, another app literally called just Focus, Hey Focus app, uh, that that blocks you from certain websites or certain applications. Those are all sort of just papering over this kind of fundamental problem of the the lie of multitasking. Because in the 90s, as windowing systems became popular, we were all taught, oh, well, you'll be able to multitask. You'll be able to do two things at once. Of course, we can't do two things at once. And, you you know, you yes, it enabled certain activities like copy and paste or dragging and dropping from one context to another. And that is useful. And iOS has, you know, very slowly reinvented these things in a very kind of like, you know, unitasky kind of way. And it, so, so, so it wasn't without its benefits, but I think that what the, the, the advent of windows and windowing systems in general, what they failed to realize was that even if a computer can share a processing time, uh, and theoretically can, can toggle back and forth fast enough for a person to have two windows open and to be switching between them, we didn't really do enough to acknowledge the attention residue that that would leave on a person's brain to be switching back and forth between things. And it wasn't really a problem until phones came around, smartphones, um, because then the, you know, the, the super, super rapid-fire engagement machines of things like Twitter and Facebook and, and every app trying to be yet another inbox, where Slack isn't just an inbox, it's actually an inbox generation tool where you can have N inboxes across M teams, and so we have so many things to check that by the time you're done checking your 55 different inboxes, well, you, you know, maybe there's something back in that first inbox. And even if you do a pretty good job of batching that and only checking a few times and not getting overly obsessive about being on top of every single notification that you receive and all those distractions, even if you do all that really, really well, you wind up with a situation where context switching and just your brain taking time to like, you know, even if you're doing another task, you're going to be doing it slower because your asynchronous brain is still kind of hung up in the stressors and the thoughts about the other thing that you were just looking at. So long story short, I really like working on an iPad for productivity because I can just turn everything off and just be on one thing at once. And um, it really has helped me focus. And, you know, I write faster. I write better. I write deeper when I'm writing on an iPad. Um, my, I, I'm able to get through 50 emails probably in half the time than when I'm on a Mac because I don't like responding to email. And if I can just see a little dingus at the top of my menu bar, I'm going to go click the dingus. And then pretty soon eight minutes is going to pass. And they go kind of like, oh, well, at this point, let's make a coffee. And then all of a sudden it's noon, right? right. So, um truth of the matter is I, I haven't gotten to work on an iPad very much because programming on an iPad is just slower and crappier. Sure. And, it, um, I, and I've been doing a lot more programming the last couple of years. Um, and so, boy, my hope is that at some point I can run a VM or something 
uh, inside of that environment and actually really program, at least the kind that I do. Right. Um, that or just batch that up, you know, so that I can work on an iPad most of the time. But frankly, when I travel lately, it's been with a MacBook, uh, a 2018 MacBook Air. Super durable, not as lightweight as I want, not as connected as I want, not as good a battery as I want, right. too distracting, but it has a terminal app. Right. Which is a, a kind of depressing state of affairs for me. It's tough. When I uh, bought a desktop recently, I was like, okay, I really want to try this. And I like researched it because the new iPad just came out. And I was like, it just sounds nice, like this lightweight device. Uh, it, it just sounded cool, even uh, from a technology standpoint. And then I was like, okay, well, I'm going to try it first before I do anything because I have an older iPad. And it was just like, it was a pain in the ass. Yeah. Like, uh, trying to, like, there's terminal apps and you can, like, SSH and they're okay, but it's it's tough. So. Yeah. Well, you know, and, and some of the things that are painful is a good pain that you should be experiencing. Uh, but when it comes to the programming side, yeah, it's just not there yet. And someday it might be every couple of years I trick myself into thinking, yes, I'm going to do this for real. I'm going to stick to it. And last time was pretty successful because Mosh is a pretty cool format, uh, protocol. Um, for, for, for more reliable uh, shell experiences when you're going to have like an intermittent data connection. Mm-hmm. It works fairly well, um, but yeah, there's just too many compromises. Well, Justin, I can't thank you enough for yeah, joining thanks us. thanks so much. It was fun. Right on, yeah. Thank any, you so much for having me. Any links you want to share, places people can find you? Well, we talked about websites earlier. Um, uh, Dustin uh, Tinney from our team just launched a, a rewrite of our landing page at testdouble.com this morning. Uh, so that's neat. Uh, so testdouble.com is a website on the internet uh, where you can learn about our company. Um, you can find uh, me uh, and, you know, whatever I'm angry about um, <laughs> at twitter.com slash searles, S-E-A-R-L-S. And, of course, anyone's welcome to uh, email me as well. I'm justin at testable.com. Great. Awesome. Well, thanks so much.